Thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Tonight, we catch up with a BC Marine ecologist, Isabel Cote, as she and her three teammates, all uh, marine biologists, team Salty Science, as they get set to cast off on Wednesday for a 5,000-kilometer journey across the Atlantic from the Canary Islands to Antigua in what's called the world's toughest row. That's right. They're rowing for about six weeks, apparently. It's all for a good cause. We find out how you get ready to spend those six weeks on the high seas with nothing but oars to propel you. They have become a truly festive part of Canada's holiday season. Cape Breton's family group, the Barry McNeils, have been wowing crowds with their musicality and unique take on Celtic music for decades now. And since their debut Christmas album in 1999, they've set out on extensive tours at this time of year. We catch up with Stuart McNeil from their next stop in Ontario to find out how this beer is going. Gaslighting has become a much-used term. It was Merriam-Webster's Word of the Year in 2022. But there really hasn't been that much psychological research into how it works and what impact it has on the gas lit. We meet a Canadian psychologist who is looking into it, and he tells me what he's found. But first, as winter sets in, we're already seeing the toll that it's taking on the country's unhoused population, including a fire in a shed in Calgary early Monday morning that claimed three lives. What needs to be done to try to make sure we don't see more similar tragedies this year? We find out. I noticed, I mean, I go home in the evening from where I work and I live right downtown. So I often see lots of people unhoused um, out and you notice sort of rhythm to it. Uh, and normally in the summer, of course, there's lots of people when I go home around 1030 in the evening, there are lots of people out and about. Um, and as it gets cooler, you see fewer and fewer. And that has changed this year for the first time when I go home late in the evening. I notice more and more people, homeless, uh, just wandering the streets. And one night late last week, it was pouring rain. And normally the streets would be absolutely empty at that point where I am in Victoria. Uh, this time wasn't the case. There were lots of people out. And it got me thinking just about, you know, we've seen a big rise in the affordability crisis this year and what kind of impact that's having right on the front lines. And then over the weekend, there was this article in the Toronto Star. It was a really... It was a really gripping article about someone named Dennis Chanteloup, who had lost his fingers to frostbite, and just about how difficult it is. He's in a sort of encampment outside of Toronto in, in a suburb called Mississauga, and just how difficult it is and how much they've seen the numbers of freezing injuries rise over the past little while, the difficult uh, challenges that people who are unhoused faced at this time of year, whether it be trying to get into a shelter, many of them which are full, or trying to stay warm using methods such as, you know, heaters and so on that can be dangerous, right? And they're warned not to, but how else do you stay warm? And then this morning I woke up to the news that uh, there had been a structure fire in northwest Calgary that had claimed three lives. Fire crews had responded to a fire in a shed in the parking lot of a home improvement store. Um, Calgary Fire Department spokesperson Carol Henke says the calls started around 4 a.m. 911 started getting calls regarding a structure fire uh, right next to a home improvement store in the northwest, Crowfoot Crossing. Um, when fire crews arrived and uh, extinguished the fire, tragically found three bodies inside. 
Now, the cause of that fire is under investigation, but it is believed at this point that the three people there were likely inside that shed seeking shelter and warmth. People who live in the area say they saw homeless people and police at the same site last week. They didn't block it off like this, but there was stuff in one of them. They were obviously going in there. So it's not really surprising seing this because I know other transit stations, they set fires to stay warm. And it's like not surprising. I hope that they do move these out, don't keep these here anymore. But of course, it does not address the, the bit wider issue. Of course, it doesn't address the wider issue. Therein lies the problem. We're seeing these issues expand to in big cities, big and small, suburbs, all over the place. And it really got me thinking about the winter we're heading into and what can be done to make sure we don't see more tragedy like this. Joining me now with more is Samantha Lowe. She's Senior Director of Shelter Operations at the Mustard Seed. They operate services both in Alberta and in BC. Samantha, thank you. Thank you for having me. This incident in Calgary, I mean, it's it's just a reminder, right? We're at that time of year and, and these things, it seems, at least according to the original hypothesis here, that people were seeking shelter, seeking some warmth and and things can go wrong when that happens. Mm-hmm. It uh, makes visible an ongoing challenge within a lot of our communities is that that unsheltered population. We we see this up in, in Edmonton as well with increasing encampments and in the media recently, there's been discussion about the fires that have happened up there as well. So it really just brings to light an ongoing challenge and the population that we're trying to support as best we can. Wherein lies, I mean, I understand that some people don't want to spend time in the shelter system uh, for, mi- for myriad reasons, but no doubt there are more people being turned. I get the impression there are more people being turned away now, and that leaves people vulnerable to trying to stay warm as it gets colder. It certainly does. And and we've seen an increased commitment from the provinces with in which we work. So that would be British Columbia and Alberta to increasing shelter capacity. Just we've seen an increasing amount of individuals seeking shelter. And this has been ongoing since the summer. It's not just the winter months, as we previously have seen that trend where You have the summer months where you have lower shelter numbers, but we're seeing an increase usage of our shelters from those summer months all the way into our winter months now. So it really is putting a strain on our shelter system. And and it's visible. It's visible in the communities within which everyone resides, where we see more encampments. We see more individuals setting up tents if they feel like they can't access shelters or they don't want to access shelters. So we're just seeing that increased need overall, but it's been a trend since the summer. Right. So, so in other words, that there was some, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it expectation, but there was some recognition that this might be a really difficult winter on this front. And I think we're already starting to see it. We've already had reports, well, of these deaths, we think three, and then there was, an, I believe, another one in Toronto. There have been, there've been reports from right across the country already, and we're, we're only in, in mid-December. You're right. You're absolutely right. And and I can I'm lucky to have a bird's eye view across our different shelters. We operate two out in Kamloops and several across the province of Alberta. And I can say our capacity has been over 100% because we'll do whatever we can to provide a safe space for somebody, especially in these months. But at some point, we have to do warm handoffs to other shelters and supports because we're just seeing all of our spaces used up. How does this compare then? I mean, I think we all 
uh, anecdotally understand the pressures that a lot of people have come under because of the affordability crisis, but it feels like we're seeing it. We're seeing it. We're seeing the evidence of it right in front of us now. And I think that is a real wake up call sometimes for people. Yeah. And it's, and it's, there's a huge challenge. There's a myriad of things going on. We're also seeing increased refugees that are accessing our services. We're seeing a changing face of those experiencing homelessness. It's multifactorial. We're just seeing this increased need that we thought would slowly ebb. I always say that, and I warn my staff, I'm trying to work myself out of a job. That's my purpose. And unfortunately, we're ending up opening more spaces. We're opening more services from those that serve those out in encampments because we recognize that not everybody wants to use a shelter to wrap around health supports, to plain shelter spaces, and trying to at the same time increase housing supports, recognizing that a lot of the times it's a complex population that moves from shelters into supportive housing. And so how do we provide that continuum of care for this this overwhelming need, but also the changing needs of the population itself. One of the things that came to light, I think, uh, and my Calgary geography is not fantastic. I've been there more than once, but that this is now becoming an issue that many people used to simply identify with inner city, right? This was a downtown east side issue. This was a downtown Victoria issue um, that most of the time where you'd see an unhoused population, they would tend to congregate around your major shelters, which are normally in the inner city. Now we're seeing it move, move out to outlying areas, suburbs, near sub, you know, exurbs, near burbs. And and you're absolutely right. And I, I'm from a small town where homelessness historically was hidden, a small coastal town called Powell River. And now it's visible. And this is a dialogue that came up recently with a new shelter that we opened up in Edmonton, where we opened it up in a central location, but there was a recognition within city council and within those who came to city council to either speak for or against that we need to be doing more to support in all the communities. And so it's no longer something that we see in um, a central business district, which is historically, you're correct, Ben, where we saw that unsheltered population. But poverty impacts a wide swath of the population. And with all of the pressures that we're seeing, we're seeing populations outside of a traditional area where we would serve those who are unhoused, who are experiencing more homelessness. Yeah, it must make it more difficult to reach people because, I mean, the the more spread out people are, the harder it is to find them and provide the services they might want or need. Mm -hmm. And and that's why you would see a a unhoused population in a central district is because you have easy access to transportation, typically a concentration of services and a concentration of population. What we try to do, at least within our organization, and there's a lot of other amazing organizations who do the same, is we try to provide what we call community impact centers. So capturing those who are not only unhoused, but also those who are on the cusp of homelessness and poverty and try and prevent that. So provide those supports in different communities in a spread out manner, recognizing that those who are impacted by poverty don't always live in the CBD. And that's sort of that changing demographics of homelessness is the way I'd probably put it, Um, changing geography of it. 
Samantha Lowe is the Senior Director of Shelter Operations at the Mustard Seed. We're talking about a tragic event um, that happened in Calgary overnight. Three people uh, were killed in a fire in a shed. It's believed the shed was outside a home improvement store uh, in this city. It's believed they were there seeking shelter and warmth. Samantha, we've seen this too. Just, to, I mean, how prevalent now are the sorts of things like frostbite injuries and, and, and issues such as that just within the population itself? It must be something that is talked about frequently. And that's a really good question. Uh, Something that we actually discussed in both Calgary and Edmonton significantly last year, because we saw, I think, about a 30% spike between the year before and last year's winter. And 30%. Wow. Yeah, Yeah. it, it was quite significant. And with those kinds of freezing injuries, and I like to say freezing injuries rather than than frostbite, because frostbite sounds like a nip that you get on your nose when you're out skiing. But these injuries are are significant and they're life altering and they are individuals losing digits or having wounds that have a lot of challenges being healed. And that's something that we're noticing more and more for for our unhoused population is those types of injuries or just managing other chronic medical conditions is incredibly challenging when you're when you're unhoused. It's challenging for the regular population, but when you don't have a roof over your head or the stability to manage those things, it's a incredibly challenging. And so if you end up getting a wound from a freezing injury, well, how do you manage it? How do you access the right services? How do you do follow-up? And those are things that we're having to navigate and collaborate and ensure that we're working as an entire system of care to provide support to individuals to make sure that they become stable and we prevent that. It's very challenging. I know in the long term, we've talked a lot about the problems with affordable housing, and and clearly that is a huge mountain to climb for all levels of government. In the short term, though, so we we can try to avoid injury and, and death this winter, what needs to be done? Oh, you're asking a broad question. Ben. Indeed. I know. I know it's a tough one, but it just feels like we need to do something. We can't just let people in a country like this. We can't leave people outside to die like this. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's where that that political will comes in. And we've seen that from our provincial, um, our provincial funders is push towards getting more shelter spaces open and having them open for winter. We have an emergency winter response shelter out in Kamloops that we open when it hits negative 10, but we also have a winter shelter that's open with 40 spaces in addition to that at all times during the winter months. And so those are short-term Band-Aid solutions, and I fully recognize that. But they are what's needed over the winter months. And so a lot of communities will create warming stations for individuals because it's not only at night that we need to provide supports to unhoused populations, but it's also during the day, Mm -hmm. just as cold. But as I said before, I would like to see myself out of a job. And so that's where those long-term solutions come into play. What would you like the rest of us to know? Um, you know, I, th- I think those of us who take public transit, we see people, you know, we see people obviously on public transit trying to stay warm. Uh, what, can, what can the rest of us do then in this case? There's a, there's a lot. And it ranges from just being aware of those in our community who experience homelessness, who are unhoused and recognizing that, teaching communities and children about that, but also to donating to 
um, nonprofits who serve those experiencing homelessness. And I don't even mean monetarily. Monetarily is always appreciated, but toques, gloves, socks, you wouldn't believe what a warm pair of socks can do for somebody who's on their feet all day. That ranges boots, jackets, anything that will protect somebody against the cold. And then also from that awareness of the unhoused population, that political will comes in. And so advocating for individuals experiencing homelessness and advocating for those who experience poverty in our communities, ensuring that we are supporting those who are considered the most vulnerable and recognizing them as valuable members of our communities, rather than just somebody who you may have a preconceived notion of who may be panhandling on the side of the street. And so rather than considering our unhoused population an inconvenience within society, but recognizing that they are um, valuable and those individuals may have experienced a lot of trauma, may experience mental health, substance use, but that they deserve as much as of a, of a right as anybody else to be housed, to be fed, to be warm, and to be part of a community. Well, Samantha, I appreciate your time tonight. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Ben. Gaslighting has been a much more popular term of late, right? It was the word of the year, according to Merriam-Webster back in 2022, so just last year, with uh, searches on its website for that particular word went up by like 1,700% just that year. People are really interested in it. Let's go back to the very beginning, though, and where that word comes from. This is a clip from a 1944 movie called Gaslight. It was written two days before she was murdered. Where did you find that? In this score, she must have left it here. It's written by somebody called Sergius Bauer. Give it to me. He said I wasn't any letter. He said I was going out of my mind. You're not going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. But why? Why? <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> wonderful. And you thought I was being cruel to you. <laughs> Keeping no, people away not from cruel. you, making you a prisoner. Oh, you're the kindest man in the world. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. If I were not mad, I could have helped you. Whatever you had done, I could have pitied and protected you. Because I am mad, I hate you. Because I am mad, I have betrayed you. And because I am mad, I'm rejoicing in my heart without a shred of pity, without a shred of regret. Watching you go with glory in my heart. Wow, 80 years nearly. Well, 80 years next year that movie came out. Charles Boyer, Ingrid Bergman, Joseph Cotton, Angela Lansbury in her film debut. Uh, the film was called Gaslight, and that's where the term, apparently, term gaslighting comes from. What is it? It's a psychological tactic. I'm sure listeners are pretty well aware of what this means in many ways. Uh, used by individuals to manipulate their victims into doubting their own thoughts, feelings, and perceptions. A gaslighter undermines their victim's self-confidence, making them question their own understanding of reality. There hasn't been that much psychological research into examples and impacts of gaslighting. So it's a small wonder that some have taken real interest in the topic, including my next guest. Psychologist Willis Klein published a study looking into how gaslighting plays out in romantic relationships, including the psychological impact on its victims, the underlying motivations of gaslighters, and the stages of gaslighting within a relationship. Again, it employs various tactics to, conv to convince victims of their own incompetence, so to speak. And these tactics are often tailored to target the victim's 
vulnerabilities. For instance, gaslighters may accuse their partners of being paranoid, overly emotional, or crazy when questioned, for instance, about suspicious behavior. There's a whole bunch of different things that fall under the umbrella, but I wanted to talk to Willis about exactly what he set out to find and what he did find. And joining me now is Willis Klein. He's a PhD student in psychology at McGill University in Montreal. Willis, thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me, Ben. This is such, I mean, we've, we've used this term now, so it's become so commonplace. Uh, but what sparked your interest in this whole issue of gaslighting? Well, I think I became interested in the term right around the time that a lot of people became interested in the term when it started popping up all over the place in the news and the media on uh, television and in movies. Uh, and I was studying psychology at the University of Toronto at that time. So I decided to uh, look into what kind of psychology research had happened in uh, the last few years on gaslighting. And I was very surprised to see that most of the work that had been conducted on gaslighting was actually quite old. And that's when I decided that I would like to focus my research on gaslighting. Just for the for listeners to understand, for the purposes of your research, how do you define gaslighting? Because I, I think people have a pretty good idea of what it means, but it, it, it can be a bit fluid. So I'm only looking at gaslighting in close uh, interpersonal relationships, mostly romantic relationships. And I view gaslighting essentially as leveraging uh, the trust that comes from that sense of closeness and intimacy to try and cause one person to doubt their own sense of reality and their own sense of self. And this is usually done to either control that person or to avoid accountability for your own uh, harmful or bad behaviors. So very much like the movie from which the term derives. Yes, and a lot of the scholarship uh, really takes a lot of inspiration from that movie. So tell me a bit about the circumstances with which this happens, because I think we're well aware of kind of the the diabolical form of gaslighting, uh, much like the movie. Uh, but oftentimes, I think according to your research, it isn't diabolical. It is a set of it's a, it's a way of controlling someone. Uh, but tell me how it begins and what the circumstances are with which it with which it begins in a romantic relationship. Yeah, of course. So sometimes it is diabolical and there are case studies in medical journals that are like that. But as you said, more often than not, I don't think it is uh, quite such a, a pre-planned uh, and, and malicious type of thing. Um, in most cases, it is sort of more subtle and a response to somebody's own perhaps insecurity or desire to control somebody else. And so in our study, we found that most of uh, the participants who had reported that they were gaslighted by their romantic partners reported that the relationship started off with a phase that we refer to as love bombing. This is a period of really heightened and intense affection. It can involve giving uh, really grandiose kind of gifts like promising uh, fancy trips to uh, foreign places or uh, really large uh, expensive jewelry and gifts and stuff like that. Uh, and this functions to quickly establish an intense uh, emotional bond in that sense of trust and also to distract from uh, future bad behavior on the part of the gaslighter and even create the sense of indebtedness on the part of the person who's being gaslighted. Uh, and in many of our participants, uh, there was uh, some kind of trigger that caused the gaslighting. Infidelity is a really common one where uh, where the gaslighter might have an affair and then in order to cover up the tracks of their affair, they start uh, to engage in gaslighting. And what that typically looks like, there is um, a demeaning element to it. So it could be as obvious as telling uh, the person who's being victimized that they're crazy or overly emotional. Uh, sometimes the, the insults are not quite so 
obvious uh, in terms of their relevance to the person's sense of reality, but there is often a doubt, uh, uh, a casting doubt on things that the person who's being victimized has clearly seen. Uh, and the effect of this on the person who's being victimized is they tend to grow isolated, unsure of themselves, they lose their self-esteem, they become depressed and anxious. Yeah, the, the impacts are, and I've, I've read, obviously, you talked about this in, in other interviews over time, and the impacts can be devastating. I, I guess when you boil it down to it, really, it's one partner trying to get away with something and, and then and, and hold on to the relationship. So maintain that control while violating that trust at the same time. Exactly. Um, this is an interesting term because I hadn't heard it before. I may mispronounce it, but it's e- epistemic incompetence, right? Which is a really, I mean, it sounds, it does sound in, in every which way to be, to be malicious, right? I mean, it is in many ways malicious. Well, it's very, it's very harmful. I think what I mean by malicious is more that the person perpetrating it might not even realize what they're doing is so harmful. Um, so one interesting thing about gaslighting is it can rely on uh, sort of stereotypes. Uh, and if somebody truly endorses those stereotypes, they might not even realizing realize how damaging what they're doing is. And they might not think of what they're doing as trying to control their partner, but uh, they might just not have engaged in the sort of self-reflection. And that's not to excuse it at all, but uh, it, it's not the same as consciously making a deliberate plot to convince somebody that they're insane in order to uh, do something like have them institutionalized, which is the earliest case studies, um, or, or, or to seize control of their assets, which uh, w- which has happened more recently as well. Right. And, and did, when you did this study, did you find that you encountered people from all walks of life and all different shapes and sizes who, who had found themselves on the receiving end of this? Uh, yeah, there was quite an age range, uh, for sure, from people who were very young to people who were uh, quite elderly. Um, in terms of the gender breakdown, it was primarily uh, women who were experiencing gaslighting, but we did have men. And in terms of perpetrating gaslighting, there was mostly men, but there were some women. There was uh, per- uh, primarily straight couples, but there was LGBT couples as well. Um, so so there was a range of people who had experienced gaslighting, uh, for sure. Right. And and I mean, when you look at the impact of it, and you talked about it a bit already, uh, but you sort of also saw it's it's a gradual thing, right? I mean, where whereby the person on the receiving end of it does indeed begin to question their own view of reality, but secretly they must know that they're not. And therefore, that leaves you in a really perplexed position, whereby you probably... Again, you mentioned you start to isolate yourself from your friends if you haven't been isolated already, and you really start to feel like you're, well, you feel like you're losing it, right? I mean, to, to put to put it bluntly. Yeah, I, I think you're sort of putting your finger on this idea that it's an unstable type of thing. Like if, if you uh, somewhere deep down know that you aren't out of your mind and somebody's trying to convince you that you're out of your mind, eventually you're going to trust your instinct is what it seems to look like. Now, there could be a bit of a sampling bias here, by which I mean, we asked people who had realized that they had been gaslighted uh, to participate in our study. And there might be people out there who who never have this insight into what's happened. Uh, hopefully, that's not the case. But, uh, but, but there could be a bit of a bias in what we're seeing, because we can only interview the people who have at least had enough insight into their experience to realize that they've experienced gaslighting. Willis Klein is a PhD student in psychology at McGill. He is uh, a keen observer and student of gaslighting, uh, 
uh, honestly, a subject that hasn't actually been studied all that much. Um, and we've been talking a bit about it uh, tonight. Uh, Willis, how, how do you, when you've talked to people about this, what's the aha moment? Or is there always that lingering doubt? But what is, is there sort of a come, a come to hither moment where they realize, wait a second, this is all wrong? So the aha moment itself can be gradual or sudden. Uh, and I think that depends on the context of the gaslighting. So in cases where uh, a gaslighter is maybe trying to avoid accountability for infidelity, sometimes the aha moment can be very sudden. Uh, you know, maybe the person who's experiencing gaslighting sees a text message or an email or something like that, and they realize that this infidelity has occurred, and suddenly uh, that contextualizes so much of what they've experienced. In other cases, it, it, there's more of an attrition to it, um, just things that don't add up one by one. Uh, Another way in which it could be a bit more sudden is uh, if, if the person who's experiencing gaslighting goes to speak to somebody that they love and trust uh, outside of the relationship and, and discusses what's been going on, and that person really helps them reframe it uh, and, and kind of reflects back onto the person who's experiencing that gaslighting that this is that what they're experiencing is not normal and the way that they're being treated is not right. Uh, I suspect, yeah, I suspect oftentimes those bonds that part of the gaslighter attempts to break those bonds, knowing that someone else could easily sort of, you know, uh, put, the, you know, lift, show them reality at some point. Yeah. And the gaslighter, uh, tends to socially isolate the person who's being victimized. That's quite common. And that can be done a number of ways, either by explicitly, uh, banning uh, the person who's being victimized from seeing their friends and family, or just by making those kinds of social situations so uncomfortable for their partner that their partner just ceases to even want to go out and see other people. How do you fight back then? I mean, in your experience in studying this, how does one seize control of that situation then when so much has been done to try to, to, try to sort of debilitate the person? So the vast majority of the people that we interviewed essentially exited the relationship when they realized that the gaslighting was occurring and that was how they were able to take control back over their lives uh in terms of somebody who might not be able to exit that relationship or might not want to uh because maybe they have children or or, or something like that i think it becomes a little bit more complex and it depends on the severity of the abuse i think definitely speaking to uh, a licensed therapist would be a good first step uh, but for most of our participants, it seemed that once they realized that the gaslighting was occurring, they pretty quickly ended the relationship, and that was how they got put on the path to recovery. What was that? Uh, what was that realization like for people? Because I, I only I can imagine you, as you mentioned earlier. You know, a lot of people, very smart, very capable, must feel um, must wonder how they got taken in. I mean, much like being scammed, for instance, you wonder how did that happen to me, and yet it happens to all of us. Yeah, there, there were some participants who experienced a sense of shame, and then there was many others who just felt like a weight had been lifted off their shoulders, like they, they came back into their own body, that they felt themselves again. Uh, so there was a wide range. There was even people who reported what in the psychology literature is called post-traumatic growth, which is the sense that they had actually somehow become stronger and more sure of themselves in response to overcoming this difficult experience. But for most participants, after the insight, uh, they started getting back to their regular hobbies, getting back to their regular friends, and just kind of seemed to come back into themselves. Where And then there was others, unfortunately, who uh, never felt like they recovered. That was a small minority of the sample. They felt uh, 
that they were never really able to trust again. So it's a case-by-case basis, and it depends on uh, the severity of the gaslighting and whether or not the gaslighting is co-occurring with other types of abuse, uh, because sometimes it co-occurs with physical violence as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, how about for the gaslighter? I don't know if you looked into this, but once a gaslighter, always a gaslighter. Is that is that is that fair, or is it is it situational as well? Uh, my research focuses exclusively on the experience of the person who right. has been gaslighted. There are some early studies on the personality correlates of gaslighters, uh, but in terms of um, uh, whether or not uh, a gaslighter can be. Um, Reformed. Yeah. Reformed. yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I don't know that anybody's looked into that recently. I suspect that that would depend on the motivation for gaslighting and the awareness of gaslighting. Uh, and, and I expect that uh, for, for people who don't mean to be harming people that they're supposed to care about, that there there is a chance of reform uh, for people who are uh, more deliberate about it. I'm not sure. It's um, where to from here, because it is it, it is such an interesting field of study i don't want to use the word psychological violence too too loosely but that's what it feels like yeah i think it is a type of abuse it's a type of psychological and emotional abuse uh do you mean where to as in uh, yeah where to for you and just in in looking into this because it feels like it's a vast there's a vast uh terrain out there to look into yeah so i have two uh ongoing projects that are very directly related to gaslighting the first is actually a preprint that's available on ResearchGate, meaning that it hasn't gone through the peer review process it's currently under review but it's kind of an early access that people can look at and that's a purely theoretical paper where i um, outline the entire intellectual history of gaslighting all of the peer-reviewed psychology work that's come before me and try and synthesize it into a model of how I think it psychologically works that draws on contemporary experimental psychology. I'm also help, hoping to develop um, a measure of gaslighting, meaning kind of a survey. Um, and, and so uh, I'm trying to use um, well-validated scale development techniques so that we can more easily study gaslighting and romantic relationships with this measure. So that's an ongoing project. I'm particularly interested in uh, the cognitive mechanisms that uh cause the consequences of gaslighting uh in my view gaslighting is something that can happen to anyone i don't think there has to be any kind of pathology on the part of the person who's being victimized that's kind of a theoretical assumption that i've made um so so i'm looking into what potential social cognitive mechanisms could explain the way in which somebody that you love and trust could make you lose your sense of self because in social psychology typically what we see in close relationships is that there's this kind of self-expanding um, element to them. Uh, but other, yeah. others are, of course, interested in the gaslighter, the personality of the gaslighter, the role that power and social power plays. Well, Willis, it's fast. It's a fascinating field of study. Thank you so much for uh, for sharing your insight into it. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Well, this has been a long time coming. Athletes have been asking for this for ages. The federal government is launching a three-person commission in the new year to investigate systemic abuse and human rights violations in Canadian sports. Sports Minister Carla Qualtra, uh, rather, says she spent more than three months, quote, obsessively considering a, a process to address this problem. And she says an independent commission will engage with survivors in a trauma-informed way. The starting point for the commission will be a recognition that bad things have happened and continue to happen in Canadian sport. Survivors will not need to prove they have experienced harm. We know you have. We believe you and we support you. 
there was an apology in there as well. The 18-month commission process is set to start sometime next year. Uh, the minister says Ottawa is looking for a preliminary and final report with recommendations on governance, funding, and policy aimed at changing the culture in sport. Canadians deserve a sports system that is safe, responsible, and accountable. That's the sport I want for my kids and for yours. Now, this announcement comes after Ottawa was accused by elite athletes of failing to act in response to abuse in sports. Athletes and their advocates have also long been calling for Ottawa to launch a national public inquiry. This is not that. But is it enough? Joining me now are Kim Shore and Amelia Klein. They are co-founders of Gymnastics for Change, a group dedicated to eliminating abuse in gymnastics. So welcome back, both of you. Thank you. Well, I mean, I, the obvious question to both of you, and I'll start with you, Amelia. We've spoken about this a lot. I mean, this is not a public inquiry, but it's something. It is definitely not a public inquiry, and that's our biggest disappointment and our biggest concern at this point. Um, by not conducting this under the National Inquiries Act, it's concerning that the commissioners are going to be disempowered. They're not going to have the built-in um, powers that come with the the act, um, which includes things like subpoena powers and the ability to compel documents. And we know that a lot of these sport actors are very reluctant to come forward and to be transparent about what has actually gone on. And both the Heritage Committee and the uh, Status of Women Committee have had difficulty getting documents from those sport actors. So I think we have concerns around um, exactly how deep this commission is really going to dig. Yeah, I, I should say it's gymnasts for change, by the way. I spell-checked my way into into a mistake there. I apologize to both of you. Kim, I mean, again, you've been fighting for this for a very long time. It feels like a lot of people, a lot of athletes have taken, have been brave enough to step up and tell their stories already. And there was the minister d- today sort of saying, well, we're going to do it this way because we don't want to re-victimize people. And I was a bit, I was just a bit puzzled by that. It sounded a bit, uh, a bit paternalistic, if I can use that term in this context. Yeah, interesting observation. I would say we we do share those similar concerns. We're holding optimism that the right commissioner will be appointed, someone without conflicts of interest, without ties to the sport community. We're hoping that the special advisors are are much the same, conflict-free. But, you know, our definition of re-traumatization includes having people tell their story and that is a difficult process in and of itself, but then not doing anything with it. So if this leads to a report that sits on a shelf somewhere, the government will have succeeded in re-traumatizing a whole lot of athletes and survivors of abuse in sport. If they do something with that report, they, they compel, um, you know, uh, organizations to follow the recommendations or this leads to law change or a further process, that would be, I think, a real win for for advocates and survivors. Amelia, walk me through this a bit. So we got today a commission. It'll be, a three, it'll be headed by three people. I mean, we've seen commissions in the past, right? We know how they work. They can be quite effective if they're done properly. But you're just, I, I gather... It, reading what you've written today, uh, that there's there's a question of accountability here, and that that that's the fear. The fear is that the accountability goes by the wayside in all this. Exactly. There's a huge question of accountability, and I think we heard in the statement today, the press release, that um, this commission is not necessarily designed to name names and to sort of name and shame who has um, 
acted badly in this system. So I think there's an open question around how are we actually going to hold this system to account? It's not enough to just be forward-looking, which is another phrase that was bandied around today. Um, We have to look at what actually exists right now, and what exists right now is incredibly harmful. And so we need to know why that's happening. We need to know who is allowing that harm to occur. And we do need to hold those people and those organizations responsible for that to some degree. So I think our biggest questions are around how that's actually going to transpire in a commission like this, especially when it's done outside of the National Inquiries Act. Right. Uh, Kim, Kim, same question, I guess, to you. I mean, it feels, again, uh, like this is a, I mean, considering what, where were we at, where were we, we were at when we first spoke ages ago now, maybe almost two years ago, it feels like this is a step forward. It feels like something is, people are paying attention. Uh, but at the same time, I think I was reading quotes today that what athletes have been calling for was a public inquiry. If you want to make this athlete focused, you know, you should, you should ask, you should re- re- respond to their, to their request. Yeah, I can't disagree with that comment. I think I read the same thing on Twitter that you did, and it, it sort of certainly got me thinking even more. I don't know. You know, Ben, this is what we have. This is the cards we've been dealt. And I think what we as advocates feel and as survivors ourselves feel that it is going to be incumbent on us to hold the government's feet to the fire to ensure that they do uh, the proper measures of holding organizations accountable and individuals accountable. I mean, surely if, if um, enough people are saying the same thing about, uh, you know, someone who's in a position of power and there's concern there for, for children or, or athlete safety, that they're going to act on that. Um, these are the sort of, you know, details that we don't have answers to yet And we certainly hope as a trauma-informed process that the minister's team will be engaging ourselves and other survivors and allies like us who are independent, who do not get paid by government grants or government subsidies at all. Uh, We do this on purely, at this point, volunteer basis and feel that we are very conflict-free I would hope that they will engage us to help further scope this investigation or this review to ensure that it is survivor-centric and athlete-led, not board actor-led and the people that have been trying to protect each other and the skeletons in their closet. I don't want to see them anywhere near this process. Uh, Amelia, the same. Do you feel, I mean, that therein lies some of the issue is that, first of all, the idea of investigating abuse in sport is very broad. There's, you're talking about a lot of different organizations, a lot of different athletes and different sports. I mean, that's massive. So you don't want this to get unruly. At the same time, you kind of, I guess you sort of need to have those who run the organizations involved in some way or shape or form because they have to, they're the ones who have to answer to some of this. Uh, at the same time, it just feels like it, 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 I guess we'll see the terms of reference, but uh, do you feel, I, I was reading something you'd written earlier, Amelia, that, that this, this does feel like a step forward though, that you feel like you've been heard at least. Yeah. I mean, I think I was reflecting a bit more on the minister's comments and even the the apology as well as the acknowledgement that we're starting from a point of 
abuse has happened and is happening. Um, while that seems so basic and feels like, you know, it's just the, the most obvious. obvious observation, I think um, for a lot of us who have been in this advocacy space, some of us for literal decades, um, hearing that does feel like a step forward, even if it's just a baby step. It's um, we're no longer fighting to be acknowledged that this is a problem, that we have been abused, that there are harms that are actively happening. We're starting from that place and we're, we're moving forward on that basis, on the understanding that we need to fix things. And I really hope that that attitude carries through this commission. I think there's a lot of open questions around how this is going to go and whether it's actually going to hold the system to account in the way that it needs to be. Um, but I think we're starting from the right place. I was noticing, Kim, today that they did announce some difference, some changes at least, to the reporting process for abuse, which looked like it might be promising, but I was trying to decipher what exactly mm-hmm. was going on, what the problem has been, and is it actually being fixed? Yes. That actually is one of the um, aspects of the announcement today that we haven't discussed very much uh, in the media. The Office of the Sport Integrity Commissioner being removed from the SDRCC, which is the Sport Dispute Resolution Centre, and basically that scenario was sport regulating sport, sport policing sport, and all the sport actors, um, you know, highly involved uh, in making declarations of guilt or innocent based on their own experience as athletes, which actually included quite a lot of normalized abuse. So we are thrilled that, first of all, that organization is going to get a complete and thorough uh, review. Hopefully that's done to a standard that we are comfortable with and feel is independent. And secondarily, if the OSIC, the sport and uh, sorry, Office of the Sport Commissioner, is moved out of sport. That would be huge because it doesn't belong in a place where it's regulating itself. It really needs to be in a uh, human rights and child protection centric organization. Right. Uh, just in terms of the structure of the commission, there'll be a chief commissioner who will be a legal expert. The other two commissioners will be someone, special advisors, one with lived experience. I presume that will be an athlete and the other with expertise in the court system. Uh, Amelia, I mean, when you look at this now, um, it's been, I mean, you've been talking about this now for a while. This happened to you 20 years ago. Uh, Mm -hmm. Do you feel, do you feel any more hopeful tonight than you did uh, say six months ago when we last spoke? Yeah, I think I'm I'm very cautiously optimistic um, and and choosing hope tonight. Um, you know, I think all of us who have come up through the sports system and been harmed by it have a degree of distrust and um, sort of a wariness when it comes to these things because we've been burned before. So there is a level of um, hesitation to enthusiastically endorse something like this because we still have a lot of questions about it. Um, But I think there is reason for optimism. I think in general, the framework that has been outlined for us um, resembles at least a national inquiry, if not under the act. Um, But really it's going to hinge on those three people who are chosen to conduct it. And then it's really going to depend on 
how they're able to hold the system to account. And, you know, without the powers that come with the Inquiries Act, it's difficult to see how they're going to do that when we know how reticent sport actors are to be transparent and to invite scrutiny. So time will tell, but um, at least tonight I'm, I'm choosing optimism. Yeah, Amelia, what it feels like every time we've spoken is that there exists these sort of fiefdoms within sport, and that until you challenge the power that exists within those fiefdoms, you'll never get to the root of this problem. Exactly. I, and there's a lot of people with a lot of power that has gone unchallenged, and they're not used to people asking questions. And I think they've assumed that they'll be allowed to carry on without being questioned. Um, so really the strength or weakness of this commission is going to be whether they can actually challenge those very well-entrenched power systems that exist. Yeah. And Kim, it, it feels like looking just at, you know, the commission's work could include public hearings, regional meetings, an online portal for submissions, in-camera sessions, perhaps, that, that your work is not nearly done yet either, because this you're now going to have to get involved in this process to make sure you're heard once again. Yes, I don't think the end of the road is anywhere near. We And, and you know, it's been an honour. It's an honour to support our survivor community through all of the processes and all of the uh, opportunities that have been presented over the past year, you know, two survive two parliamentary committee hearings that required, you know, a hundred, a hundred athletes, a hundred survivors to come forward and, and share their stories. We'd like to be in a position here where we can give information to our survivor community and let them decide for themselves if this is a process that they feel comfortable participating in and you know and that is going to be a lot of work I'm sure there's going to be a lot of one-on-one calls and maybe group calls we we already have a a peer support um, offering where we meet monthly with uh, fellow survivors and and you know it's been mostly gymnasts to this point but it is open to anyone who would like to participate and it's really just an opportunity with a with a guided the guidance of a professional to kind of talk through and lots of times it turns into just random memories and conversation and and it's amazing how many people resonate with each other's memories and that alone provides comfort and community and a sense of belonging and if that's the role we need to play for another few years here as we move towards our community healing we are honored to do that. Well, Kim and Amelia, it feels like you, you might not have moved the mountain yet, but you certainly gave it a good shove. So thank you once again for your time tonight. I always appreciate it. Thank, thank you, you so, so much, Ben. Their music, the Barry McNeils, has become kind of an integral part of the holiday season here in Canada. And if you saw their tour schedule, you'd know why. It is relentless. It is relentless. Uh, Cape Breton's family group have been wowing audiences with their unique uh, sort of brand of Celtic music magic for more than three decades now. Uh, but the group from Sydney Mines, Nova Scotia, originally have been touring the country at this time of year, at least, specifically since the release of their first Christmas album back in 1999. And they have a touring schedule, as I mentioned, that would make the most fervent of Christmas lovers uh, bow with respect. The East Coast Christmas Cross Canada Tour 
began back on number November 14th, uh, sold out in Whitehorse in Yukon. It ends on December 22nd at Toronto's Massey Hall with 30 other stops in between. Um, they're making their way east. We find them tonight, I believe, if I've got this all right, in Orillia, Ontario. And Stuart McNeil joins me now. Uh, Stuart, thank you so much for your time tonight. Hey, it's great to be here. Yeah, I just finished a show. We had just finished a sold-out show in Aurelia. The crowd were great. Tourists were going great, too. It, it's just uh, been really well-received, and the, the weather's been cooperating wherever we've been traveling. There's been weather patterns be, uh, behind us and uh, ahead of us, but so far it's been pretty good. Yeah, I can imagine touring Canada at this time of year is no, and you do it every almost every year is no small feat. I mean, you a lot of snow, a lot of snow and delays in there. Well, I tell you, we've been doing this for over twenty years, and uh, it is uh, traveling across Canada never gets old. I mean, it's just the the the, uh, the scenery is just spectacular, and uh, it's become a, a Canadian tradition for a lot of folks to come out to see the show, and. Uh, it's, well, sometimes people wonder, what is the show about? Well, we are a family that uh, have been playing music for a long time. And uh, we uh, just, just, we are multi-instrumentalists. Uh, uh, everyone sings in the band. And the show is really based on a lot of our, our experiences growing up uh, in Cape Breton Island. And uh, just and as a family, it, it, it is a great fit. And uh, the, the show goes from uh, moments that feel like a midnight mass to a r- very ruckus uh, Cape Breton kitchen party and everything in between. And uh, we have a lot of fun with it. And I think the best compliment, compliment that uh, I've ever had was that people say that that uh, their kids, uh, they used to go as kids. Their parents would drag them to the show. And now they'll buy tickets for their parents and they make a big day of it. And it really is a... Uh, an all ages show with a, we get a, a, a definitely a couple of different generations. Yeah, I was saying just to, just as we were waiting for you to call in that I had spent a Christmas in in Kilkenny once, not Killarney, but in Kilkenny, and, uh, cool. and not too far not too far away, not too far away. And uh, I can just imagine what your family Christmases would have been like. And I guess that's what you bring. I mean, that's what you've been bringing for for you know twenty five years now is that spirit Sweet. onto right. stage. And yeah, and that's something that's hard to you can't you, that, that's lightning in a bottle, you know. <laughs> well, it's interesting because it, it really does encompass a lot of the feelings of, of Christmas and and the humorous things that happen at Christmas. You know, they're just those the things that a lot of families can can appreciate. And uh, the, this this and in some ways, like people say, you know, doing this tour, uh, what is it that keeps you doing it? And uh, it really is the, a fan favorite, and uh, it's. It's usually the first show that a lot of theaters are, are interested of the Baron McNeil, as it is a uh, it is an annual uh, uh, seasonal trek for us, and uh, we really do enjoy doing the tour. And uh, it's it's we have a great crew with us. Uh, Lucy's never sounded better; her she her she just knocks it out of the ballpark every night, and. Uh, and there's there's just great moments of very lively uh, instrumental music, but also there's a there's a lot of uh, interesting choices of songs, both in the traditional and more contemporary vein. But it uh, we we made uh, our first Christmas album in 1999, and it was really well received. And uh, 
since that time, we, we've made three Christmas albums, and uh, a lot of the material does come from that. And uh, But we well, it, the show gets embellished every year, but we try to keep it feeling like, uh, like something that, that people do, like the, the tradition of uh, certain things they want to hear at the show. Yeah, Lucy's Oh Holy Night, I'm sure we'll play it. It's magical. It's a magical. I, I guess you have to, I mean, you've been doing this long enough now that you need to watch out with that set list because you take out too many of the favorites, you're going to hear about it. Oh yeah, you you it, you know there there are tunes that you have to have in the show for sure, and uh, but it is nice to it, it is nice we do change up stuff and and the dialogue and the banter that that stuff changes from year to year and just there's a uh, some wonderful stories and uh, and sentimental moments in the show too. I think I think there's people that. Uh, People sometimes that have uh, have lost loved ones during the year, and they, they, I think sometimes it, they, they do get teary eyed during the show, thinking of loved ones. As as with ourselves, we 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 had uh, our last Christmas uh, with our mom last year. Uh, she passed away in January, and uh, so it will be a different Christmas for us this year for sure. Yeah, I, I realized I was listening to uh, listening to an interview you'd given, I think, with Lucy a while back and talking about how your mom had the first piano in Sydney Mines and she would sort of, and it was such a big, music was such a big part of your upbringing and really what well, you're I'll doing is you, carrying, was, yeah. She grew, she grew up in a place called Washabuck and it was very rural and uh, there was a, a great tradition there of uh, fiddling. Some of the finest Cape Breton fiddling came out of that area and uh, it, uh, it they they had the first piano in in the, their community and being a rural area it you know it's it it uh, there really weren't uh it wasn't a place where you'd go to the pub you know you had a you'd have a local community hall where they would have dances but but house parties were the thing and uh and it definitely like we were exposed to a lot of great uh, great music great uh food laughter it just seemed to be a, a time that uh, people were in a good mood, and uh, that's what we try to uh, we try to get people in the spirit of the season. And uh, and it seems like a, it's uh, it's been very well received for over twenty years now. And uh, we just uh, to tour it is is really a treat, and Canada certainly is a, a wonderful place to tour in. Yeah. And, and you've been touring. I mean, you started, so listeners know, this all began when you were very young, right? I mean, you've been doing this now for, <laughs> for a long time. You started off, I think I think Lucy was 10, wasn't she? Uh, well, she probably was younger than that. We all started right. very young playing, and and we were encouraged to play. And I, I think that when we were growing up, uh, something that uh, I appreciate now is that it didn't always matter how good or bad you were. If if the party was going on, everybody had their party favor that they that they did. <laughs> or you know, there was always somebody that would would get up and dance. And, you know, they weren't always the best dancers or the worst, but they. But I, it was it was great that uh, you didn't have to be so polished all the time. And I think sometimes that's lost today. Uh, it's it's it really is. Uh, if we never toured, I'm sure we'd still be playing music uh, in uh, in our local environments, and because uh, it really is, I think it's been a culture first for us, and uh, and uh, a profession second. 
Right. And I, I, you all, I mean, just so listeners also know, I mean, you play the, I guess it's the, you sing accordion, tin whistle, flute, a bazooki, which is, I mean, I grew up in a Greek neighborhood, so I'm really impressed with that. <laughs> really impressed that you learned that because that could be a shrill sounding instrument if you don't play well, it well. You know, I do, I, I do play bazooki, but Boyd is the main bazooki player in the band and, and the, oh, okay. the main guitar player as well. And uh, he, I remember when he was four years old, he actually got a fiddle for Christmas. And uh, and I remember when he went back to school, he couldn't figure out why. How come all the kids didn't get fiddles? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I remember hearing you say that one of the reasons you picked up other stuff is because well, everyone plays the fiddle, right? So you just wanted to do something a bit different. Well, yeah. I mean, Cape Breton is known for its fiddling, and uh, I love Cape Breton fiddling. But uh, I was kind of tuned in with a lot to the, the scene that was going on in Ireland and Scotland at the time, and. There was a more addition of different instruments, and uh, I kind of I I went towards that. Well, I, and everybody, I think everybody else in the family plays fiddle except for me. I well, well there's one brother Ryan who who didn't play fiddle either. But uh, you know, it it really is uh, it, I, what I do enjoy, and I think what's kept me interested in playing with their family for all these years is the fact that we do have a a great palette to arrange, you know, the instruments and the vocals ranges. And it's uh, when, you know, when we do get on stage, the, the magic does happen and you do remember why, why it is we do this. And uh, I, I think it's, it certainly is a labor of love. And uh, I, I know we really appreciate being able to get out and do these tours. You must run into, uh, I suspect you run into Cape Bretoners everywhere you go. We do not everywhere, no. But uh, we, you know, there are Cape Bretoners and and East Coasters in general. But there's also there is quite a cross section. I know that in Toronto there's a there's a, a a Jewish community that that do come out and they love the show, and uh, and we've played at uh, bar mitzvahs, bat mitzvahs. We've played at uh, a. a We've played with Ukrainian dancers before uh, in Cape Breton, the Barvanok dancers. And there's been a lot of those type of affairs that we've been involved with. And uh, it's, you know, I think, I think what people will, people that come to the shows will realize that it is a lot of traditional music, but it's not just that, you know, it's, it's, uh, I think everybody has a lot of varied tastes in what they listen to. And, uh, and also just what they play on their own. So it's nice that everybody brings that to the to the table when the Barrett McNeils get together. Stuart, I heard you once compare this to sort of taking out an old-timers hockey team now because it's so much work and people get kind of creaky because you do a lot of moving around, right? But, wow, you still keep it up here and you're out. <laughs> yeah, you get people talking about when they get home, they're going to their chiropractor. and <laughs> It's much like gentleman's hockey, really. <laughs> <laughs> but still, I mean, you, you keep it up with this. I was looking at the at the schedule. I mean, you're playing every night, more or less, over the course of well, about a month and a bit. Some In some markets, there's two a, a matinees are added. So there's actually 37 shows. Right. And uh, it really is, uh, it's pretty pretty demanding. And, uh, you know, everybody tries to take their vitamins and, and pace themselves as we go. But it's, uh, I think, I think the fact that we've done this so many times that, uh, you know, there certainly is a, uh, 
uh, a headspace you got to get yourself in and uh but but it seems like uh you know the energy is there but i i find i think we all notice now that when the when the tour is finished it's uh everybody is really 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 pretty tired and uh it's usually it's i think a lot of a lot of us it takes till about uh, new year's before we uh before we recover yeah <laughs> no kidding. I've talked to other bands before about this, about just the, the beauty of touring Canada. It's such a big country. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and Stuart, I should say, I know how much energy you put into those shows. So thank you for talking this much late at night as well. Um, oh. <laughs> but, but at this time of year, you know, I mean, as you've mentioned, it's kind of dark. We live in this big spread out country. Uh, the, the joy of getting to see so much of it, because it is similar but diverse all the way across and you get to see so much but you must have places that really stick out to you that you go back to time and time again well i fl- flying into whitehorse is just spectacular from vancouver it, it certainly is one of the most incredible flights i've been on in canada and uh, whitehorse itself the community is quite uh, it's just an amazing place we've been up there three times now and uh it's always interesting to go to uh places in the north like we've played a Callowitz uh many years ago and uh uh we played a, a gig at the most uh <laughs> the most northerly elks club in the world and then the following day we did a show and all the elders came out and uh it was pretty magical they were i remember at the time the elders were very fascinated with lucy uh playing the 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 boron the frame drum and uh you could see they were very fascinated by that. And they, and another time we were up in uh, Ravinatuk, up in uh, Hudson Bay. And uh, that was amazing because I, I, what I really struck me, uh, well, there's a few things. Just culturally, as soon as you land there, the language is everywhere. And then uh, uh, you go out on a frozen lake to uh, to see the ice sculpting. In its natural habitat, <laughs> and it's it really is very very striking. And uh, and then of course we went to the uh, the local community hall to play. And when you get there, there's about 200 snowmobiles. Of course, <laughs> all lined up. <laughs> of course. Well, I'm not sure. Massey Hall. Do they have parking for the snowmobiles? Not, not if I remember on Young Street. Not that I remember last time I was there. Uh, that's great. It must be. I mean, this year having lost your mom and my condolences because I was reading about that earlier. I know what a big influence she was on everyone. Your dad's still there, and he'll be yeah. coming. I guess must be a big deal to play in Glace Bay. That's one of your. I think that's coming up on the sixteenth of December, or just a little bit later in the month. Yeah, we do a couple shows at the Savoy Theater. The home shows are always great. Usually, uh, well, you know, there's some of the. Uh, Younger players that, that might be taking some lessons from uh, from Kyle and and Boyd fiddle lessons, uh, they'll they'll be around. And also, there's a, uh, there's a uh, the MacArthur dancers. Uh, they're fantastic troupe from uh, award winning dancers from uh, Cape Breton, and uh, they they will actually do all the shows on the East Coast with us. And we just found out that they are going to be at Massey Hall as well. So oh, they certainly. They certainly uh, add a beautiful uh, uh, dimension. They're they're uh, uh, they're Highland dance and also Cape Breton step dancing. So they really uh, they they really do add and, and they've danced with us uh, 
uh, numerous times over the years, and uh, it's always such a treat to have them involved. And Halifax has always been a. Uh, it was kind. Of, in many ways, it was. The, we we taped uh, our first Christmas show in Halifax. Actually, both Christmas shows were done in Halifax, uh, and uh, it became uh, very much the home of uh, of our Christmas tour. And the, the shows there are always just really energetic. And uh, it, in uh, uh, places like St. John, a lot of these markets that we're, we're, we we people do get their tickets early and uh, make plans to go. And, you know, and we've, at the dates we've done already, uh, Jack Singer in Calgary was, was uh, sold out. The, the Windspear Center in Leventon was sold out. And, uh, you know, and it, it really, really is uh, uh, quite, quite amazing when you come to some of these places and, and people, you know, People do take their families out to the shows, and uh, it becomes, it's, although it's, it, it is not the Nutcracker, but a lot of people uh, make it uh, an annual trek. Yeah. I mean, I've seen, I, I have nothing against the Nutcracker, but a, but a Barry McNeil's concert looks like, <laughs> looks like more fun, I have to say. They're different. flattering. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> they're different. Are the, are the, are the, is there a new generation of McNeil's coming up to take, take the reins? Uh, these, these are some you know, pretty uh, hard tours. Well, they're they don't they're not touring with us at this point. They they are uh, players. There's a Seamus uh, has three kids, and they all play. And uh, and uh, the, uh, Lucy's kids uh, they sing, and they will show up for some local shows. But right now they're in university, and uh, Seamus is oldest. Uh, Malcolm is actually he's in his final year at Saint of X in the jazz program, and. He is just a stunning player, very mature sound, and he's uh, his uh, his just his his approach to guitar and his musicality, his uh, ability to improvise, and also he's, he's very strong in traditional music as well. So, so those they do play, and as, when we do get together during the holidays, there's always some uh, some tunes that happen, and there's some local local friends. Uh, of the music, musicians sort that usually show up, and it it really is quite festive. Uh, that the the those uh, parties we have during the those holiday the, during the holiday season, they yeah. just uh, they're just so special. Well, Stuart, I wish you the best of luck on your the rest of your tour. I know you're in Kingston tomorrow night, uh, so best of luck with that, and uh, happy Thank holidays you. to you and your family as well. Well, it was a, pre, uh, a treat, Ben, and I'm going to nolla creel agus bliana ur. Yes, my my, my Gaelic is awful. <laughs> my Gaelic is well, terrible. Merry Christmas and a happy New Year. Perfect. Thank you so much, Stuart. Have a great night. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Well, this was big news today from the federal government. They unveiled a new dental care plan today. We've been talking about this for quite a while, but we got sort of the details today. It's a $13 billion insurance program that will start covering routine dentistry costs as 
next year for people who meet a certain income income threshold. Um, it's for kids under 18. Uh, first of all, to cover kids under 18 and some seniors before it expands to all eligible low and middle income Canadians by 2025. So they're opening up applications for seniors aged 87 and over later this month. That's going to be the first group and then other age groups will be able to apply in the new year. Um, Health Minister Mark Holland announced the rollout of the program this morning. Uh, he says eligible Canadians won't have to make the choice between paying their bills and getting the dental care that they need. A third of Canadians today do not have access to dental insurance through their employer. One in four have said they were unable to visit an oral health professional because it was too expensive. When somebody doesn't get the oral health care that they need, it means uh, they're going to have issues cardiovascularly, it means with diabetes or a myriad of other chronic disease and illnesses. So it isn't just about the social justice of somebody being able to wake up and go to work with a healthy smile. It's fundamentally about their health. Right. Health Minister Mark Holland today announcing the rollout of this program. Now, it's aimed at people with an annual household income of under $90,000 who don't have access to private insurance. And that's about a third of Canadians. A third of Canadians don't have access to uh, private insurance. As I mentioned, eligibility will slowly be expanded over the course of next year to include all qualifying seniors, kids under the age of 18 and people with disabilities before offering it to all qualifying Canadians the year after that in 2025. It is a huge, as I mentioned, a huge program, $13 billion. So probably the biggest expansion of healthcare we've seen in a very long time. Um, Canadians who have applied, who, sorry, Canadians who have applied, qualified and are enrolled in the expanded benefit will be able to start receiving uh, oral health care as soon as May of 2024. So again, a very big deal. Um, the minority Liberal government agreed to roll out this program as part of its parliamentary deal with the NDP, in which uh, the NDP agreed to keep the Liberals in power until 2025 in exchange for actions on a list of policy issues such as this one. Um, the government has contracted Sun Life, a private benefits provider, to deliver the program. Examples of services that will be covered uh, include preventative cleaning, examinations and x-rays, fillings, root canals, dentures, and extraction. So this is indeed a pretty widespread thing, and it will, will be rolled out gradually. We thought we'd ask uh, the Canadian Dental Association what they thought of all this and uh, what we should know. Dr. Heather Carr is the president of the Canadian Dental Association. She's also a practicing dentist in Halifax, but she joins me from Ottawa. Dr. Carr, thank you. I'm very happy to be here and answer some questions. Tell me, I mean, this was interesting to see because I think a lot of us have been waiting for the details, the timeline. Um, so today we have them. We have a, a bit of a better idea of how this is going to be rolled out. What was your reaction to it? Well, you know, the Canadian Dental Association has been advocating for access to care for these vulnerable patients for years. This is nothing new for us. We have grave concerns that uh, persons with disabilities, in some cases, seniors, sometimes seniors have benefits but lose them when they're 65 you know, and retire, and also low income that they just aren't able to get regular care. So any program that's going to assist these individuals is a positive. When we see how this one is beginning, uh, it's it sort of, I think the timeline's a little bit slower than had been perhaps advocated by the NDP who are, who are fought for this uh, in government or fought for this with the government as part of their arrangement. But we're sort of seeing a phased in approach. So we're starting with seniors, I gather, uh, 87 and up. And and, and yes. perhaps we already have children under 12, right? So we're starting to cover larger proportions of the population bit by bit. Yes. And they've and, and I, I don't speak for government, but uh, yes, at the announcement today, they indicated that the, uh, they're bringing it in gradually to make sure that we get people in 
in, get them, not we, they, get people registered. It'll be Service Canada. We'll reach out to Canadians as they're eligible. And probably, I think it's May of 2024, uh, all seniors, uh, 65 and over, who are eligible will be contacted. And then they will uh, include persons with disabilities and the children under 18. So that'll be their their first uh, cohort. It's a massive, it's a massive thing. I mean, when one thinks about it, um, it is, it is just a, I, when I was growing up in Quebec and there, there was child, there was dental care that was free of charge for kids. But other than that, it feels like it, this hasn't been around in many, in many ways for a very long time. And this feels like a huge expansion of the sorts of uh, services that people are provided for and an important one. Yeah, it, it is monumental. Uh, you know, in Canada, we have been lucky. We have two thirds of our population, which have great dental care. And that that is a that is a positive, but that means we have a third of Canadians who aren't able to access regular dental care. And we know that prevention, trying to capture issues when they're early on, can can be incredibly important. As well as just you know, say if you're applying for a job or your own emotional well being, you want to have a nice looking smile. As well, we also know that dental emergencies are one of the um, you know, biggest reasons that people go to an emergency clinic, I believe it's second, but I wouldn't want to be, I don't know if that's exactly correct, but yeah. it's a high proportion of emergency room visits. We know that dental care is healthcare, right? I mean, and we've talked about that quite a bit since this was first announced. Yes, absolutely. It's, you know, it's, it's always been part of your overall health, but I think now we're acknowledging it and people realize how important it is. It's not your mouth is part of your body, <laughs> and we actually see it. I, I like I said, I'm practicing dentist for 35 years, and just last week I recommended a patient go have um, a test for diabetes, or at least to talk to their doctor about whether they should, because this is somebody who's been reasonably good shape, not having a lot of problems, and all of a sudden is having you know problems with their gums, really inflamed. I, I hate to use that, but you know they're swollen and they're not happy, and so this is one just one example of where you can see the connection between your body and your health. I've already talked about the emotional connection and even things like cardiovascular issues are related to oral health. So it, it, the list is probably endless, but I won't keep going on. <laughs> yeah, no, but but it's it's true. Tell me a bit about about this um, about expanding at first. Uh, obviously, for kids, it's a big deal for seniors too, because these must be people that you see too, and you're probably acutely aware of some of the financial struggles that that they face. And we know, of course, with the affordability issues these days, that something like a trip to the dentist is probably one of the things that people if they're not covered. It's probably one of the things that people let slide first. Well, it it is on it is unfortunate because as we age, and I say we, I'm including the myself. Collective we, yes, indeed. <laughs> we we do. We tend to have more oral health issues. So, if anything, it's even more important to to get into the dentist regularly. For example, myself, I used to have cleanings every six months. Now I have them every three months, and that's important to make sure that I, my um, oral health is in good shape. And unfortunately, I've had some of my patients who, when they retire or if they hit a certain age, even if they're still working, they lose their benefits. And you're right. It, it, if they're trying to budget, they some individuals will start to drop back on visits just when it's important to stay stay in in having regular care. It's just more important to be in more frequently. So um, if this benefit, if this program can benefit those individuals, then yes, that would be very helpful. Right. Because you see them I mean, you hear from them directly, right? They must, they must voice them. I mean, perhaps they don't voice these concerns right to you, but within the office, you must be aware of, of, of who's, who's not coming as often for, for obvious reasons. Yeah, no, we, they're very, they're very honest, you know, because I've been practicing some of them, but my patients for over 30 years, you right. know, 
And so they're very honest with me. And I'm also very honest with them that the problems they could have if they're not able to come in regularly. Dr. Carr, are you familiar with, with what exactly is being covered in these programs at this point? I know that it's not absolutely everything, but it is it is a pretty broad sweep of things. Yeah, based on the announcement today, they certainly did you know describe the at least an, an outline of what the services are. But uh, the details haven't been announced yet. There's still uh, some discussions going on between the um, Canadian Dental Association, the Provincial and Territorial Dental Associations, and the government to work out a plan that's really we just want them to get it right. So we want a plan that's going to really take care of the patients who need it. Right. And I guess the concern always is, in some, some of these cases, is that when when the, when the state moves in, the insurance companies move out, right? So we want to avoid that as well, I suspect. Yes, that was mentioned today. And it's it's been on the table. The CDA has been you know, providing resources and information for the federal government from the very beginning. Uh, it's their plan. You know, it's their plan. But we've been trying to give them the best information we can. And de-insurance, what we call displacement of insurance. Like if, if your employee, if the employers start dropping plans, it could cause two issues. One, it may not be as good a plan. You know, the, the federal plan may not be as good as the plan you have. So we, we have to wait and find out that information. But even more importantly, it might make the plan less sustainable. Because if you go from 9 million Canadians to 17 million Canadians being covered, that's going to increase the cost of the government substantially. So my understanding is they're aware of the issue and they're going to be doing some work on it, but it is also another issue that the dental associations have been discussing with the government. Yeah, what else has come up in those? Because I guess this is always the law of unintended consequences, right? Both the good and the bad, but there's always sort of an action reaction whenever when anytime anything this big uh, starts to roll out. Well, I think um, if, uh, say, they're still in negotiations with the provinces, so if some of the provinces have really great dental programs for children, seniors, or different, it it varies across the country. So if some of these provincial governments decided to drop their plans, that that also would be part of what we considered when we were concerned about the increased numbers of Canadians who might need to be covered. Right. Uh, but overall, though, I mean, I, I followed sort of the CDA's reaction to this from from the get go, and it's and as you've pointed out earlier, this is something you've been advocating for uh, for a long time, and it's it's taken a long time for it to come along. Yes, yeah, this is you know this is monumental, and we acknowledge you know the investment that this government has made in oral health care, but it it has it has to be done properly and it has to address the patients who really need the care. So I guess the devil is in the details and those are the discussions that are continuing. Right. So just to be clear, then we've seen sort of a rollout of a timeline today, but we're still working. We don't know the exact details of what this program will look like. Yes, you're, you're correct. Right. Okay. Well, Dr. Carr, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. I was very happy to speak with you. You call it the world's toughest road. It's four destinations, it's two oceans, 3,000 miles across the Atlantic Ocean. It starts in the Canary Islands and ends in Antigua. That 2,800 mile rowing race that starts in Monterey, California, and then heads across the Pacific Ocean to Hawaii. Wow, that is a journey. These congratulations to some incredible rowers just taken on one of the toughest races in the world. Four men who've been rowing across the Pacific are now celebrating on Kauai. A team of rowers that have set a new world record for crossing the Atlantic Ocean. Just completing the 3,000 mile journey is a massive achievement. 
that's a taste of what they call the world's toughest row. No kidding. There, there are two different races, actually. They do one in the Pacific and they do one in the Atlantic. So in the summer, they do a California to Hawaii one. And now in the winter, they do one from the Canary Islands uh, near Spain or technically part of Spain to Antigua. And it is a 5,000 kilometer row. 5,000 kilometers. I I used to get tired rowing across the lake at camp because rowboats can be a little clunky, right? Uh, 5,000 kilometers in a rowboat, that is a long, long way. And four marine scientists um, who have affiliations to Canada, two, two of whom uh, work and study here in BC, are about to set off on this very long journey all for a good cause, and I believe it starts on Wednesday. There's been some weather issues, but right now it looks like they're going to set off on December the 13th from the Canary Islands and head all the way to Antigua, and that should take them approximately six weeks, more or less. So hopefully by the end of January, in and around there, uh, they make their way to the end of this. Uh, the the all-woman team are called the Salty Science Crew. Of course, they are marine scientists, so it makes sense. Um, they include Isabel Cote, a professor of marine biology at Simon Fraser, Chantal Beger, a professor at the University of South Florida, Noelle Helder, who's at the University of Alaska Fairbanks, and Lauren Shea, who's a master's student at UBC's Institute for Ocean and fisheries. Now they're set to depart, as I mentioned, on Wednesday, six to eight weeks, it turns out it may take them. They've been fundraising now for more than two years, training for the past 18 months. Can you believe that? 18 months. And they'll be doing this all on a 28-foot boat. It's not that wide. It's 28 foot long, called Emma. They plan to sleep and row in shifts. And get this, it will be on a two-hour on, two-hour off situation. So a little bit of sleep, a little bit of rowing, a little bit of sleep, and so on, and keeping that up for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks on end. Um, the team started raising money back in 2001 and started an intensive training program about 18 months ago, even enlisting a trainer who specializes in rowing, obviously, um, and they cre who created a six-day-a-week regimen for the team. So they're in tip-top shape as they get ready to go. As I mentioned, it's all for a good cause. The team has raised about $240,000. The hope is to make it to half a million all for three different marine conservation organizations, Green Wave, Shellback Expeditions, and the Bamfield Marine Science Center. I was so curious about why, what it takes to prepare to row for that long and what it must be like when you realize that you're just about to set off. Isabel Cote, Professor of Marine Ecology at Simon Fraser University and one of the foursome that make up Team Salty Science joins me now from the Canary Islands. Uh, Isabel, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's getting close. It's getting close. It's getting very close, and we just can't wait to get on that boat and go west. Yeah, I suppose you've been training. I mean, that's you've been training, I know, intensively for ages now, right? Yeah, yeah. So the this this project came to be almost three years ago. Uh, and there was there was a, a long lead up where we tried to fundraise and buy a boat and so on and so forth. And uh, about 18 months ago, the, the physical training, the hard physical training started. We got a coach and uh, we've been training. So doing weightlifting and also some resistance training and endurance training for, yeah, about 18 months, anywhere between sort of two and four hours a day, five or six days a week um, with very little break, it feel, felt like. Um, yeah, that's very intense. That's very intense. It, yeah, 
very intense and now we're just ready we've been here in La Gomera for uh, a couple of weeks uh, we got reunited with our boat Emma that we shipped from uh, Florida back in September so we didn't see her all fall and uh, and she looked great and everything well not everything was working fine we took her out for a spin and a few things didn't work so they were a few sort of uh, slightly tense days uh, in the past week, but everything is uh, working fine now and we're ready to go. Wow. What was your reaction when, did you propose this or did someone else propose this? What was your reaction? No, I did not propose. (laughs) (laughs) So it said, hey, let's row 5,000 kilometers. Yeah, my teammate Lauren uh, actually was at the end of that race two years in a row in Antigua in the Caribbean. And the first year she said, no, that is just something crazy. And then the second year she said, actually, this sounds pretty cool. So she called her best friend, Noel, who immediately said yes. And they both had a professor when they were undergrads at University of South Florida that, you know, they got to know pretty well. Um, And so they called her and uh, asked her if she wanted to go. And she said yes. And then they thought, I think we need a, a fourth person. And then Chantal knew me because I was her PhD supervisor, even yeah. though she'd graduated sort of a dozen years ago. And um, and they asked me and and I said the same. It's like I didn't even consult, you know, my husband or my kids. And I said, yes. And then a few days later, I said, oh, by the way, <laughs> I'm I've signed up to do this crazy thing. <laughs> I mean, it's it's it's. It is a very ambitious, it is a very ambitious journey. How does it work? I mean, you described Emma before. How do four people physically do what you're about to do? How do you sleep? How do you eat? Yeah, it's so it's going to be a tight squeeze uh, for 45 to 50 days. So the boat is uh, about eight and a half meters long, about maybe a meter and a half wide. So pretty tight. Not big, yes. no, not big. So there, there are two cabins at either end, and it's open to the elements in between. So there's three rowing stations that are just, you know, open to the sky. Uh, we're going to be rowing uh, two at a time most of the time, two hours on, two hours off, 24 hours a day. So at night, when two people are rowing, two people are trying to sleep, and then there's going to be a shift change and the rowers are going to try to sleep and the sleepers are going to wake up and start rowing. And uh, yeah, we're going to do this nonstop, learn to basically sleep in little chunks like that. Um, we have to eat a lot to fuel 12 hours of rowing a day. So we've budgeted, uh, depending on our sizes, Lauren is a lot smaller than us. So 4,000 to 4,500 calories a day, um, which is more than twice, I think, what we would normally eat. That's a lot so of food. That's a lot. It, that's a lot of freeze-dried food. It's an insane amount of food. Um, so it comes in three square meals a day, freeze-dried or dehydrated. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that only provides about half the calories. So every day we have a bag of snacks that is about two thousand calories, which. You know, if we weren't rowing, we'd be elated to have all these things that you wouldn't eat because they're so calorie rich. Um, but we're going to have to force ourselves to to eat that to, yeah, to fuel yeah. all that rowing. 
I noticed on your on your uh, social media feed that you say that you love the ocean, fish, uh, open water swimming, and chocolate. So you're going to get all four, I guess, in this, uh, as well as coral reefs. I don't imagine you'll be seeing many coral reefs from where you where you are. No, at the end we might. At the end we might. Yeah, it's I, I, I can't imagine you could possibly I mean, I know you can train for this, but you can't train for the conditions or that. Right. I mean, although I realized it's actually I hadn't thought of this because I thought, wow, it's winter, but it's actually a quieter time of year in the Atlantic than going any other time, more or less. Uh, this is this is why they go now. So it's uh, the hurricane season, the official hurricane season finished a couple weeks ago. Um, and it's also a little bit cooler, which becomes pretty important. So they. You know those those cabins are that where we're gonna try to sleep um, are small, and they have to be shut. The doors have to be shut at all time. Um, so you know, as soon as we we're we're gonna go south and we're gonna go west, but as we go south, it's gonna get warmer and warmer, and it often exceeds thirty degrees in these cabins. You cannot open the doors because what one of the cabins has all the electronics. So it'd be a complete disaster if water get in got in there. Um so so it's it's I think it's the right balance of um, you know, outside of the hurricane season and in relatively cooler uh, weather. Right. And and obviously you're you're not really protected from the elements, right? I mean it's not uh, at all. Not at all. <laughs> of course. I mean no. I've never I've never been in the in the open Atlantic. I've seen it, obviously, from the shore. Um it's it's a it's a lot. I mean, it's a, it's it's it could be a bit rough out there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we um that's why there was uncertainty actually uh with our start date. They got moved around by a few days earlier, a few days later. Um so, so basically, the the organizers were waiting to find at least a two day window of relatively good weather with the wind in our back, where the slowest rowers, because there's there are some people who are doing this in solo or in pairs, and obviously they're going slower than the threes and fours and fives. Um, and they have to clear the rest of the Canary Islands, so the the west most islands so you wouldn't want somebody to start and then face you know north blowing winds and then get right. blown onto the island so so there needed to be a window for everybody to clear the islands and then after that well then you're you're, you're on, on your, your own, own. Yeah, you're and, on your uh, you're on your own, right? There isn't you're not being followed by some safety boat no, or something, right? No, no. So we we're unsupported, so we're bringing all of our food. Uh, all of our uh, drugs and first aid and all of our spares, all of our tools. Um, we can basically, we can repair a lot of things if things break and uh, all of our safety equipment. Isabel Cote is with us, professor of marine ecology at Simon Fraser University and about to hit the high seas. Um, she and three others, uh, Team Salty Science, will be taking off or leaving, rowing out on a 5,000-kilometer journey called the World's Toughest Row, which begins uh, on Wednesday, the 13th, if all goes well. They leave from the Canary Islands in Spain um, and will head all the way west to um, Antigua in the Caribbean. So it's a long, long haul. This is for, you mentioned it earlier, you were fundraising to get the boat together and so on, but this is for a good cause, right? Yes, that's right. So all four of us are marine scientists. So all four of us basically um, spend our working days on the ocean, but we also play in on 
the ocean. The ocean basically means a lot to us professionally and personally. Um, so we decided it made sense to uh, fundraise for ocean conservation, which is a cause that unites all of us. So we um, identified three charities that are all contributing to building local capacity in marine conservation through training. And the, they're very different charities. They do this in very different ways and they target sort of different segments of people who can help. Um, but they basically all contribute to this sort of bringing up the next generation of people who can solve ocean problems. Great. And we will mention where you can find all of this and follow the journey uh, when we're done. Um, when do you expect to arrive? Is it, is it 45 to 50 days between between the Canary Islands and Antigua? Yeah. So we're aiming for about 45 days. It could be 40 days. It could be 50 days. It sort of depends on the weather, really, and the winds and, and so on. We have enough food for 55 days, so hopefully we're not going to get there. Much later than that. Okay. Yes. Uh, I mean, you've spent a lot of time on the ocean. What what, uh, what do you most look forward to and what do you most dread? Yeah. Um, so I do spend a lot of time, especially underwater, but I'm really a, a coastal person. So I rarely go beyond sight of shore and, you know, the lights of the big cities and, and so on. So I'm really, really excited to be offshore. That is going to be a new experience for me. And what I most look forward to, I look, I look forward to the nights, uh, you know, untainted by city lights and uh, be able to experience real darkness and being able to see the skies. And uh, the first few days that we're going to be rowing, there's supposed to be a, a meteor shower. That's right. This week, that's right, of course. So we're hoping that we'll have a really, really good look at that. So that's going to be really fun. Um, but I also hope that we'll just have these chance encounters with these really big animals that you find, you know, in the middle of the ocean. So whales, for sure, and sharks, for sure, but also things like marlins. Right. Um, a handful of boats every year see marlins sometimes they see marlins a little bit too close but um i mean that would absolutely be magnificent to see one of those in their natural habitats and not at the end of a fishing line yeah i mean it's going to be an adventure i mean it's going to be the journey of a lifetime there's no two ways about it anything that you dread anything that you're dread dread's a tough word anything that you're slightly oh. concerned about <laughs> or maybe dread's the right <laughs> yes, word yes, yes oh there's lots of things like i i'm a person of, of many phobias including the darkness even though i will oh, really? conquer okay and yes. out of sight of land so i'm definitely gonna have to conquer that one as well um I think probably the, the biggest fear is to have some sort of rogue wave at night uh, hit the boat. Um, the boat is built, so it's really, really hard to capsize. Like do a full 180 is really hard, but it's likely to broach. So do about a 90 degrees. Um, but um, it, it's built to right itself. But, you know, if that happens at night, that I think that's going to be pretty scary. I mean, we are we're tethered to the boat at all times when we're not in the cabins. So we will stay, you know, inside the space of the boat. Um, but you can imagine if that happens on a moonless night, for example, 
in pitch darkness where you cannot see the wave come at you. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm, that's, I'm, that sounds like that way, but. My fingers are crossed. As you're describing this, my fingers are crossed. So it's, but uh, we'll get, yeah. I complete the, our boat has, that's going to be its fourth crossing. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it, she's definitely the most experienced team member that we have. And I completely trust in her ability to keep us safe. And where, and where can people, I know people can follow along. You're on Instagram because I've been looking at the photos at Salty Science Rowing. Uh, and and right. there's a website too where people can follow you. There is, there is a website. Uh, so our website is saltyscience.org. And uh, there's all the information to follow the race. You can follow the race uh, in real time. And the information is on our website uh, to do that. So that would be pretty neat. Like day to day, people can hover over a little boat, which, well, sometimes appears green, sometimes appears purple. But you'll be able to see, you know, pictures of what we look like and how fast we're going, how far we are from the end. And um, yeah. Well, That's Isabella, be fun for our families. I wish you and the team the, the very best of luck, and uh, we'll be following the journey. Look forward to talking to you when you arrive safe, safe and sound in Antigua with food to spare. So it'll be uh, best of luck. Happy holidays to you and the whole team too. And, Thank uh, you very much. And look, if people wish to support us and our causes, uh, you can find all the information to uh, donate uh, if people are able to on our website, and that would be the best Christmas present awesome. ever. Bon voyage, as they say. Merci beaucoup.